Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood and welcome to Faith and Family. Would like to thank you for joining us today. We have a rather special show entitled The Mammoth Manhood Crisis in the Catholic Church. And when I talk about a mammoth manhood crisis, I'm talking about particularly how the clerical abuse crisis and the clerical homosexual catastrophes, along with the cover-ups of both of these things, has led to a manhood crisis in the Catholic Church. Now, this mammoth problem started growing at least a century and a half ago, but it's been made horribly worse by the clerical crisis and the abuse cover-up. And I'd just like to warn you that this is a politically incorrect show, and I'm not teasing. I'm not. That's not a little teaser for the show. I'm very serious. Uh, I've received a call to defend both the faith and the family, so here it goes. We need to start with the Civil War and a Civil War question. And if you can answer this simple question, then you will be able to discern what is causing the mammoth manhood crisis in the Catholic Church. Here's the question. Why did Civil War soldiers march right into the face of cannons firing deadly canister? Do you remember if you've seen the Civil War movies when a whole line of soldiers would be marching and then the cannon officer would give the order, load canister, which is just like shrapnel. It's it's pieces of metal and lead designed just to rip flesh apart and kill whole lines of men marching forward in battle. So why did Civil War soldiers march right into the face of cannons firing deadly canister? Well, somebody might answer say, well, military tactics in the Civil War were not adjusted to warfare with cannons. And that's absolutely true. They didn't really catch up to it. But I can guarantee that the soldiers who were marching into the face of cannons surely knew what was about to happen. And here's why. Here's why these soldiers marched into the face of cannons. They were marching in battle units from their home communities. And if a soldier turned in battle, he could never go home as a man. Yes, he could go home physically, but he would go home as a disgraced coward. And so the Civil War soldiers preferred death and maiming to losing their manhood. And I hope you're sitting down right now because you may be completely unprepared for what I'm about to say, but here it is. From about the time of the Civil War, at least here in the United States, the Christian churches of all kinds have encouraged men to suppress their manhood in order to attend and be active in their churches, and the rest have fled an effeminate religion. Let me give you a history, and this history is tilted a bit towards Protestant church history in the United States, because that's my background as a Protestant clergyman, and I've studied a fair amount 
of the period that I'm about to describe to you. In the mid-19th century, there arose a religious movement called revivalism. These were the beginnings of the Crusades, and they tended to promote a very high-octane emotional approach to Christianity, not necessarily a reason approach and not necessarily one that involved the deepness of the human will, but looking for this emotional response. And the preachers found that they had great success with this on the short term and particularly with women. Now, you couple the emotional revivalism with the temperance movement. There was uh, tragic plagues of alcoholism, but attempting to uh, stamp out alcohol rather than to change moral behavior, uh, you had the temperance movement, which is basically the preachers who are now— Uh, tending to be more effective with women through their emotional type of preaching, coupling that with the temperance movement, that when a guy came home, he couldn't have a cold beer. How do you think men reacted about that time through both the revivalism and the temperance movement and the soft men who increasingly were entering the ministry to basically be the preachers to increasingly large numbers of women compared to men. It's good by good men, as the title of a good book describes all this type of thing. Uh, It was even worse in England. And for centuries, Anglican clergy have been thought of as a third gender. And I'm not talking about this uh, latest craze of the transgender stuff. I'm talking about for decades, if not a few centuries, Anglican clergy have been thought of as the the third gender. There's male, female, and clergy, and this is just a common joke. Uh, There's a man by the name of Leon Pottles who has written a book entitled The Church Impotent, subtitled The Feminization of Christianity. Um, I recommend the book, although I don't agree with necessarily everything in the book, but in there— Leon Pottles cites a study by two university researchers by the name of Terman and Miles, and they developed an instrument to test a scale of masculinity and femininity, and they gave this test to wide selection of folks in order to develop this masculinity and femininity uh, test. Catholic priests and Catholic seminarians scored lower on masculinity and tested more feminine than any other group of men in the United States, with the one exception of passive male homosexuals. And the Catholic clergy were just a little bit better than Protestant clergy on the same masculine and feminine scale. Now, Let me just say this as clear as possible. Effeminate clergy repel men from the church. And if that is true, then homosexual clergy and clerical sex abusers of children are like the $10 billion Saturn V booster rocket that propel men to a distant orbit as far away from the church as possible. 
I had a friend whose family was Catholic when they came to the United States, Hispanic background. My friend ended up getting his doctorate at Harvard Divinity School, followed up with a professorship at Fuller Seminary, and I had become a Catholic, and I decided, well, it's kind of a time to, to reach out to my friend. He, You know, maybe because of his grandparents' background in Catholicism, he may be open a little bit to the Catholic faith. And I called him up. We chatted a little bit. And he said, well, what's up with you? And I told him I had become a Catholic. And his response was, why do you want to become a part of a homosexual church? And then he apologized. He, he said, my friend, <laughs> kind of the Hispanic tendency is just to say what you believe. And he said what he believed. And he oh, he said, my grandmother would have been mad if she heard me say that. And I didn't really mean that. He really did mean that. Why do you want to be a part of a homosexual church? In other words, if you're a normal man, why do you want any part of that? Now, some of my fellow Catholic radio hosts say in the midst of all this clerical abuse crisis, which also involves homosexual activity, it's a homosexual crisis as well, say that they don't want to get rid of celibate homosexual clergy. Really? Now, I agree that perhaps it wouldn't be wise to go on some kind of campaign trying to drum out current leaders in the Catholic Church who have a homosexual orientation. But I'll tell you this, Catholic leaders who are homosexual in their orientation, even if they're celibate, ruin Catholic families by repelling Catholic fathers. You get Catholic fathers repelled from the faith by an effeminate clergy, and you end up with a wife whose sole responsibility is to try to lead the Catholic family spiritually. It's 100% on her shoulders because normal men prefer death than to lose their masculinity. And we really need to rethink this. This isn't acceptable. We want fully developed, normal, not some kind of hyper Rambo kind of guy, but we want fully developed men to lead the other men and women and children and young men in the Catholic Church. You know, Catholic wives, so many wonder, why doesn't my husband want much to do with the church or church life or even Christianity in general? And so they struggle with trying, particularly when you know, kids are little, it seems maybe it'll work okay, but, you know, dad doesn't come to church. How come I need to go when they hit the teen years? And, of course, as they develop into young adulthood, they're generally long gone, especially if dad isn't practicing the faith. Here's another one. I have literally heard from young Catholic women asking, where are the men? And by that, the emphasis is on men. Where are the real men? The real men who can step up to the plate and take the responsibilities as husbands and fathers. And when you have effeminate clergy and homosexual clergy, it re repels the real men, especially the young men. And then you have very strong, strong-believing 
young Catholic women serious about their faith without a good pool of potential candidates for marriage. And I have been asked this in public, and I've been asked this in private. Where are the men, the real men? And here is the number one reason why they are long gone. And this is, again, some research from a Dr. Woody Davis. His book is entitled Church Talk Makes Men Walk What the Research Shows and What to Do. And he interviewed men who had left the church, didn't want anything to do with the church, and they had various answers all over the board, but there was one overriding theme that was mentioned by every man he interviewed, and it's the one thing that's always mentioned by the ones he interviewed that were unchurched, that have left the church, and it's this, it's unmanly. Again, Men prefer death to losing their manhood, and effeminate or homosexual leaders in the church is death to attracting men. And a lot of people think, well, if we get the women, we'll be fine in the church, and it doesn't work that way. In such a highly secular, anti-Christian culture that all of us are living in, it's a toxic culture to have a strong enough faith. Yes, you need mom, but also you need dad. God's plan is mom and dad united in leading the church. Mom in a truly feminine way and dad in a truly masculine way and the priest who's a real man leading the church. Now, obviously some changes need to be made if Right now, those who are in the priesthood and seminaries are scoring, and this doesn't mean everyone, there are genuine exceptions, but if the general group leading the Catholic Church tested more feminine than any other group of men in the United States other than passive male homosexuals, something really needs to happen. We just don't accommodate ourselves to the way things are. Now, the problem is so huge. It's not only an elephant in the room. The elephant has taken up all of the room to the point that, well, this is just the way things are. It is the way things are, and it's not right because this is repelling men from the Catholic Church, and it will change, but it'll probably take an ecclesiastical earthquake before it does change, and perhaps we're in the midst of one right now. Now, the problem of effeminate and homosexual clergy is so pervasive that perhaps things will change with some new bishops coming our way and perhaps after a clerical cleansing. I think one of the things we could use is a type of council of Jerusalem, but this one, a council for manhood. I don't know if you're aware But in Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem was a most critical moment in the history of the church. If this council had not met and had decided and took action on what they decided, I probably wouldn't be speaking to you through this microphone. 
you wouldn't be hearing a Catholic radio station. Most of us would not even be Catholics. We'd still be involved in our pagan worship of whatever. But a decision was made because initially, in the early church, there was a very strong group that thought that this large group of Gentiles that were converting to the faith, that these Gentiles had to become culturally, so to speak, Jews before they could become fully Christian. And Acts chapter 15 made a radical change. And this radical change came after a thousand years of practice because before this point, you did have to culturally become a Jew to become a Jew, so to speak. But no, the Council of Jerusalem says Gentiles can be Gentiles and fully embrace the faith of Jesus Christ in the Catholic Church. Now, if that was the first and one of the most important decisions ever made in a church council, why couldn't the Catholic Church today decide that, well, actually, first of all, recognize, because you have to have a recognized crisis before you meet to decide something in church council. Okay, we have a manhood crisis, a mammoth manhood crisis. Why can't we decide as a church that men don't have to become effeminate and accommodate themselves to an effeminate culture before they can fully embrace the Christian faith? Dr. Woody Davis, who I mentioned just a moment ago, says this, the message men have been hearing today is that they must come to God on woman's terms and that to be Christian, they must become feminine in real practical ways, deny their manhood. If that is true, and I believe it is, and I, I know this is politically incorrect, so you don't have to <laughs> send me hate letters because of it. If this is true, you're asking men to really, in a practical way, deny their manhood, then you're asking them to deny something that's so basic that men not long ago in the Civil War would prefer death to losing it. So you have situations today where you have cardinals and bishops and priests tripping over themselves, for instance, to be welcoming to the LGBT community. Do you know what this is doing? This is ruining Catholic families by driving Catholic fathers and men away from the practice of their faith. This stinks in the nostrils of real men. I, I, I just don't know any other way to say this. It's repulsive. And they, they're, the leaders doing this are so effeminate, they don't even realize how offensive they are to driving away those who are supposed to be playing such a vital role in the Catholic family. You know, here's something you probably never heard of. Have you ever heard of a priest who actively kept men in mind when renovating and redecorating the sanctuary of a parish? Have you ever heard of such a thing? Well, that's exactly what, what my parish priest did. 
He decided that the colors needed to be used. I mean, obviously nice to both men and women, but can't we keep men in mind when we plan things, when we do things, the the choices we use uh, in developing certain ministries, the vocabulary we express, open the church to men. I had a godly monsignor ask me to run his parish website in order to reach Catholic fathers a little bit better, so I took a look at it. The color scheme of the website was pink. Now, I have nothing against pink, but my, my, (laughs) women, I'm talking about married women, and especially married women with children in the home, want a man who shares the spiritual leadership with them. And not to be repelled thinking that church is something for women and young children, because young men certainly don't think it's a place for them. In fact, I'm thinking of a young man who I know who um, had a thought that he might be called to the Catholic priesthood. So he went to a vocations weekend, and a nice, soft, young priest shared his love for the fine arts amongst other fine but soft things. And I have nothing against the fine arts, but did this young man become a priest? No, he decided to become an army ranger instead. Why? He was seeking manhood, gave first shot to the Catholic Church, and was repelled. Think about this. Who and how are we welcoming real men? How about having a vocations weekend where you start by watching Braveheart and then going out and doing some calisthenics and some workouts and then come in and talking about the sacrifice needed to be a man in the Catholic priesthood in the 21st century? I'm getting carried away here. Uh, What should we do with most seminaries? And again, this is the politically incorrect broadcast. I'm just getting it all out. But bottom line, most seminaries need to be closed down. And you've read it's so widespread, even surprising places that predatory cardinals going into seminaries and corrupting the souls of, of young seminarians, even some of the, quote, best seminaries this is going on. Now, any Anyone who's a leader of such a seminary needs to be booted permanently and never allowed within 10 miles of another Catholic seminary. So you close it down, get rid of the tenure program, and start rebuilding seminaries led by men. That's the first requirement led by men who are fathers, and any father protects his children. Any religious father who's in charge of a seminary protects his seminarians from predators, no matter how high they are in the hierarchy. They give themselves and give their lives if necessary. So you close down the seminaries, start new ones, just like Cardinal Stafford did in Denver. The the seminary out there was a mess, so he closed it down and opened up a new one. Ah, That's something you can do. What about men's small groups? Okay, this is politically incorrect for everyone. Some men's small groups that I visited include hugging, almost semi-mandatory hugging. And men are told that uh, without mutual support and sharing of feelings, they'll never survive. Well, most men actually don't see themselves as little wisps that can be blown away with a little bit of wind that uh, they can't stand on their own two feet. Rethink men's small groups. 
You kind of wonder why young men, even if they visit, don't stay very long. Let me tell you about the best Catholic men's group in Minnesota. Uh, now, that's actually that's a mistake. Let me tell you about the best Catholic men's group in the entire world, maybe even the entire universe. It's called the Argument of the Month Club. Argument. Not nice, soft, cushy, sitting in a circle, sharing feelings. The Argument of the Month Club. And this is, this is their purpose statement. The war of our time is the war against truth. This fellowship of men fights for the truth by bringing clarity of truth to the Catholic and non-Catholic. It is our hope that men, enlightened by the truth, encouraged by fellowship, will return to the home and workplace better prepared to wage war on all the evils of our day. Modern society has tried to kill true manhood, and we hoped this was one way to help restore it. God bless them. There is men driving through snowstorms from various parts of Minnesota to get to this monthly meeting. If I lived anywhere near it, I would go there monthly, not to share feelings and kumbaya and group hugging, but to hear men war for the truth. Uh, Catholic men's conferences. I was at a Catholic men's conference not too long ago, and one of the speakers that were joining me for the guest speakers was a theology of the body expert, and I thought to myself, you know, I could be listening to a woman's conference talk, and here I am in the middle of a Catholic men's conference. Think about who you have and what they're saying to men. You don't want Lousy stuff, okay? Let's just leave it at that. Here's something from Billy Sunday, who was a professional ball player turned evangelist, Protestant evangelist in the early 1900s. Billy Sunday put it like this. The Lord save us from off-handed, flabby-cheeked, brittle-boned, weak-kneed, thin-skinned, pliable, plastic, spineless, effeminate Christianity. And you think, well, that's awfully offensive. Well, I'll give you one more refined. St. Thomas Aquinas said that effeminacy in men was a vice, not a virtue, like many think, a vice. Why did the Civil War soldiers march right into the face of cannons firing deadly canister? They preferred death to losing their manhood. So I pray that the Catholic Church learns to fight for the reestablishment of Christian manhood amongst fathers and priests. I really do. I'm Steve Wood, your host. You've been listening to episode 207 of Faith and Family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to order copies of Faith and Family broadcasts and to learn more about Catholic family life.